Welcome to the Minimum Viable Podcast, a project of the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum. Our mission is to inspire, connect, and empower people in order to promote a culture of innovation in the U.S. national security community. You can learn more about DEF and get involved at DEF.org. That's D-E-F dot O-R-G. We look forward to your ideas and are excited to connect you with other doers working on hard problems. All right. Good evening, everyone, and thanks for joining us for tonight's installment of the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum Tech Leader Series. The DEF Tech Leader Series exists to empower defense leaders and change agents with the insights they need to digitally transform national security as an extension of the DEF mission to inspire, connect, and empower people through events, partnerships, and solutions. My name is Jay Long, and I'll be serving as your moderator this evening. Tonight, we'll learn from Mark Pushinsky, a managing partner at Hardyards, where his team helps transform organizations using best practices from agile and design thinking. Previously, Mark served as a director of product management at Capital One, holds an MBA from the Darden School of Business, an MS in the management of information technology from the University of Virginia, and a BA in business administration for the College of William and Mary. Our goal tonight is equipping defense leaders with the tools needed to enhance their team's mission impact by identifying opportunities for disruptive improvement. Thanks a lot, Jay. Uh, before I jump in, let me let me just say uh, a, a bigger thank you to uh, the the forum and to Jay for asking uh, asking me to do this. It's it's a I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you all and and share some of the the uh, insights that we've put together over the over the over the years and in, in value stream mapping and how to apply it and, and make it work for you. Uh, so just a little bit about what we'll what I'll walk through. Uh, I'm going to start with a bit of a history lesson. Don't worry, it won't be too long. Uh, but if we're going to talk value stream mapping, uh, we have to really talk about the roots of it, which started with the, the lean movement. So I'll walk through uh, sort of where that came from and how it's grown over time. And then a little bit about the tenets of lean and, and different perspectives on it uh, to position value stream mapping in that broader context of, of uh, lean thinking and lean management. And then I'll share a few examples, uh, mostly commercial examples, but I'll try and tie it to at least one uh, national security potential idea around uh, a value stream. Uh, And then I'll walk through the process of how do we go about create, what does it look like? And how do we go about creating a value stream? What's the process to construct one? And then end with uh, what do we do with it? So now that we've gone through the effort of identifying a value stream and mapping it out, uh, how do we use it to create value uh, for the organization? So that's that's the the, the general flow uh, of the talk for us this evening. So first off, uh, the history lesson. Uh, you could say that the first person to uh, apply lean uh, was Henry Ford. Uh, he took uh, building, constructing uh, a machine, in this case, obviously, the, the Model T Ford, and used some lean thinking uh, to put the first assembly line together and mass produce a vehicle. So that was sort of the start. Uh, But relatively quickly after that, uh, the Japanese uh, actually came and observed what Henry Ford was doing in his plant and basically said, hey, this is great, but I think we could do it better. And they took some of the you know, initial things that, that the Ford plant had done in terms of streamlining the building of a car and continued to improve upon that. 
uh, eliminating waste, making the process flow better and better. And really, uh, we're the first ones to, to identify uh, lean as, as an approach to increasing the, the flow of value uh, through a process. Since since then, you know, after the the Japanese sort of put a stake in the in the ground around uh, being the first real lean improvement organization, there have been plenty of books written on this subject. Uh, some of the some of the work, uh, early work around the Toyota production system, was done by uh, Taichi Ono, uh, and then there's a really popular management book called the Toyota Way, which for those of you that aren't uh, you know all excited about sort of the technical aspects of lean and want to understand it from a management and a philosophic standpoint, that's a great resource. Uh, so then, you know, even beyond Toyota, like it became clear that these ideas around lean and lean thinking uh, were, were going to be bigger than just manufacturing automobiles. And since then, uh, you probably, I would say a pivotal work that was done was lean thinking uh, by James Womack and, and Daniel Jones. That really took the ideas that were proven out in the Toyota production system and made it more accessible and more general to a, a number of different contexts. So between that book and then the other book that they wrote together, The Machine That Changed the World, to me, that was really the point in time where uh, you go beyond just the Toyota view of it and sort of make it approachable by, by a, a broader set of uh, people. And then things start to get crazy, right? Uh, of course, you know, Lean Six Sigma, uh, we start to apply lean thinking and rigorous process, business process management uh, to, to get really um, precise in how we measure the outputs of a process. Uh, but since then, there's, you know, the lean startup applying this sort of approach to how you build new businesses, lean analytics, lean UX or user experience. Lean marketing, and a couple of other. These are two of my favorites. Lean safety. I'm not. I've never read Lean Safety, but there's a book on lean safety. Even the Lean Dentist is a thing. That's an that's an actual book, not something that I made up. So all that to say that uh, over time, what people have realized is that uh, these ideas are, while maybe have their roots in manufacturing, there's really broad application of of this way of thinking. And if a series of books uh, don't prove the point that this has now brought application, uh, Lean has even made it into Dilbert cartoons and memes. So, you know, you know you've made it when uh, there's a big Lebowski meme about the way you do work. So I won't, I won't read these for you. And for those of you that can't see the screen, I apologize. But just know if you were to, if you were to Google uh, Lean Dilbert or Lean memes, there's plenty out there for you to consume. What's in what we want to unpack a little bit? What are, what's contained in those books? And there's a number of different points of view on what what does it actually mean. So uh, one view is the Toyota production system, uh, and it has a number of different uh, aspects to it. Thinking you know just in time manufacturing, um, a pull system, kaizen, which is the the art of continuous improvement, standardizing work. All of those things uh, are part of the Toyota production system point of view on it. There's the Toyota way, which deals less about uh, specific practices and more about philosophy. So uh, it's helped, you know, the two big pieces of the Toyota way are respect for people and continuous improvement. 
That's another way to describe lean. Um, for those of you that are in the software development realm, uh, also uh, this is sort of fundamental to the way agile software development is done and safe, the scaled agile framework uh, has done a lot of work to sort of translate these ideas of lean uh, into fundamental principles that they use to underpin the way uh, the scaled agile framework works. To me, these are all kind of complicated, right? And so from my point of view, I like a really simple view of what it means to, to translate lean. It's five steps. Uh, first step, identify value. Second step, map the value stream. Oh, there it is, map the value stream. So that you can sort of see uh, why I chose to start us off in lean because the value stream mapping process is fundamental to the overall lean approach. So then after you map the value stream, we, we use it to help us create flow of value through the organization to establish pool where rather than pushing work into the system, we're using the capacity of the system to actually pull work through it. Uh, and then ultimately uh, step five is uh, seek perfection. And it's not really a step, right? This is a continuous process. It's a continuous loop that we keep going over and over and over again, because there's, it's never done, it's just better, and we just keep making it better. So while we're not going to talk uh, a lot about um, three, four, and five, create flow, establish pool, and seek perfection, I am, I am going to talk about one and two, right? So we can't get to map the value stream if we don't have at least some fundamental basic conversation about uh, what value means. So in summary, um, I like this quote, uh, lean is a way of thinking, not a list of things to do. So at the end of the day, you know, we're going to walk through uh, something that looks really technical uh, in the form of a value stream with, you know, measurement and calculations and things like that. But at, but at the end of the day, this is really about your approach to um, managing the work and leading the organization not just a, a checklist of things that you do, right? So that, I think that's important for us to, us to remember. So starting off in what, what is value? We think about the activities that we do in any organization kind of in, in three buckets. Uh, first, value-added activities. This is anything that we do that uh, the, way it's, the way it's captured many times is that changes the size, shape, fit, form, or function of the product, service, or information that's flowing through our process. So anything we do that directly makes it more usable, more user-friendly, more valuable, if you will, to the end consumer, that's a value-adding adding activity. And uh, a way to think about this is the user would pay you to do it, meaning it's, it's so important to them that you do this that they would actually hand over money, whether they actually do or not, because a lot of these may be internal value streams, uh, they would pay you for it because that's that's how they see it. But they would only pay to have it done right the first time. Remember that point. It's going to come back when, uh, in a later point when we talk about the forms of waste. Then there's uh, two categories of non-value-added activities. First, incidental waste. Things that we do that uh, you know we just have to do it that way. I'm, I'm sure you can already start to think about what that might be. These are required by current thinking or current culture, required by current process limitations, 
required by the current technology environment they operate in. Or, you know, we're in a in sort of a government context here, re required by government or business regulations, right? There's lots of things that we do that if we thought critically, nobody would say actually create value, but that what we have to do just to run the business, right? So that's one bucket of work. And then the third bucket of non of activities and the second bucket of non-value add, we would consider pure waste. It doesn't create any value for the end customer. And a good test of this is if you stopped doing it, would anyone care, <laughs> right? If you just eliminated it from your process, if, if everybody would just be happy about that, then that is absolutely a form of, uh, of pure waste. And again, I'll come back to these forms of waste later on when we talk about uh, how, what do we do once we've identified the value stream? So now we've got, in, got to get to the point where we're going to map the value stream. We know what value is. It's, it's a set of activities that, that the, improves the outcome for the end user. But what's, what does a value stream look like? Well, it's a linked set of activities that in, increase the value over time. So I, I'm starting off with a very uh, commercial example here around order to cash. This is a really common value stream for any organization that's in retail uh, or even, even B2B, right? So it starts off with an order, we fulfill that order, we deliver the goods, we invoice for it, we collect a payment, and then we take that payment, and we apply it to the uh, bank account cash application. So while this may not uh, have direct context for national security, because there's not a whole lot of order to cash going on in national security, there is for all the people that you're buying products and services from. So while this may not be your internal value stream, I can almost guarantee that you're interacting with organizations where this is their value stream. So just understand that they're gonna be, you know, if they're working this way and trying to improve the way they work, they're gonna be thinking about how they make uh, customer order, order fulfillment, and delivery and invoicing better for you. So it may not be your value stream, but you're absolutely part of their value stream. Another example, this one probably has uh, more application, hire to retire, right? The sort of the HR value stream uh, for an organization where we start off by uh, how do we identify and attract talent? How do we select and hire the right talent? How do we onboard them into the organization, whether that's, you know, initial training or setup of their uh, environment so they can, they can actually do their job. How do we develop them and invest in them over time? Uh, how do we promote them uh, as, as they grow throughout their career? And then ultimately, how do they either transition out of the organization for whatever reason or, or retire? That end-to-end -end process is, is a large value stream for just about any organization, right? Whether, whether they are a commercial organization or a, a federal institution or a nonprofit, right? You, where you have people being brought into the organization and exiting the organization, uh, this, is, this, is, this is likely a value stream. And then thirdly, uh, one that I picked, certainly these three examples that um, I've selected here are not exhaustive in any way. These are just uh, to give you some perspective on what uh, a value stream might look like. Uh, the data to decision value stream, right? So we're, we have data, we turn it in information that 
creates analytics. From those analytics, we generate insights. We then make decisions. Those decisions likely drive actions. Hopefully those actions create some outcome, rinse and repeat, right? That's, that's another form of a value stream. Just to sort of make a, a loose correlation here for you, right? This data to decision value stream, you might think this could be similar to the F3 EAD uh, process, right? I, you know, I'm not declaring that that is a value stream for you, but it might be. You might view it that way. Uh, and as we talk about what a value stream map is and how you might manage it, uh, maybe you'll see connection. You know, for those of you that are familiar with that, uh, you might see a connection for how you could apply these practices in that in that context. All right. So, what is this thing we call a value stream map? Um, it has some pretty basic elements to it that that I want to walk through. Uh, first, we want to know who's the customer, who is the end the end person that's going to receive. Uh, and again, this could be a physical product, a service, a piece of information, right? Any of those things uh, could, be, could be improved upon through a value stream and someone could consume them. And then there's a supplier, the people that are actually going to do the work uh, to improve the value over time. And, and particularly in complex value streams, you might actually have more than one supplier, right? There could be several different organizations that are involved in ultimately creating the end value or parts of the organization, right? I, I, I said organization, I mean, there could be different elements within an organization that are involved in creating end-to-end -end value. Then the next step is, where the next element is, what's your product flow? Uh, so as, as what are the process steps that you're gonna walk through that add value to this product, service, or information uh, that those are, that's probably the most important part. Well, I don't, maybe it's the most important part. It's, it's probably the part you would spend the most time identifying. Let, let me say that is to uncover what are all the various process steps uh, that are involved in your value stream. And then the last element is uh, information, right? So you're not just changing the value of the product or service or information as you go, but there's information flow that occurs in that value stream. So you can think about these as a uh, demand signal from the customer, right? How, how does information get passed that says, hey, I need this product, service, or information? How do we schedule and synchronize the work as it moves through the value stream? And then what's the signaling between process steps? How does process step two know that process step one is finished and it's time to start? All of those things are uh, considered information or data flow as part of a value stream map. So one example, uh, again, tying this to something, some folks on the call may be familiar with the software development, right? You can think of the process of building software as a value stream where we're getting a signal from someone who needs a, a new feature. Uh, there's information being passed, whether that's through a, a product manager or a release manager, ultimately into the technology organization. And then we're going to go through a series of steps, right? We're going to do a, a user interface design. Then we're going to develop the backend code. We're going to test it and we're going to do a build, right? All of those process steps. And you can, you can see how maybe there would be signaling that would occur, right? If there are different teams working on different steps of the process, Team A would need to know when, when, or Team B would need to know when Team A is finished so they can start 
Um, and then at the very bottom, uh, and I'll, I'll come back to this in a bit, you can see this, uh, there's an idea of a time ladder, right? Uh, so for those of you that don't have the visual, the time ladder basically says, uh, how much time do we spend doing these value creating activities? Like how much time do we actually spend creating the code versus wait time uh, in, between, in between process steps? And that combination of wait time and processing time gives us sort of end-to-end -end lead time on the process. Uh, and that will be important later on when we talk about how to read one of these things and, and what to do with it. All right, so the I, I broke this down into eight steps. How do we go about creating a value stream map? The first one uh, is, first of all, we have to identify what value stream we're going to go after. And it's highly likely that regardless of the organization that you work in, that there's more than one value stream that's that's uh, being executed. So there's a there's a concept of uh, what we what we refer to as a product family matrix. Uh, so if you think about what are all the products that we produce, and again in this context, a product can be physical product, a service, or some piece of information. What are all the things that we produce, and then what are all the processing steps that occur? For a large organization, this product family matrix could get really large. But what we're looking for is where is there sort of a, a center of gravity or center mass around where there's a set of products that share common processing steps. If we can draw a circle around the, that commonality where com similar products share processing steps, that can help us identify what we call a product family and likely where there is a value stream. That's one way to do it. Um, re remember that when we're thinking about processing steps, we only, want, we only care about the, the value added activities, right? So all that non-value added work, whether it's that incidental uh, waste or pure waste, we wouldn't map that out in our processing steps. We'd only care about the things that we believe add value. Cautionary tale here. This might it might come up like what 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 do we do with this? Um, if you've never gone through this process of doing value value stream identification and value stream mapping, a uh, couple pieces of of advice. One is pick one to start with. Right. Don't launch an initiative to map every value stream you have in the organization. That'll you probably won't finish. Like you'll get halfway through it and you're this is too hard. It's taking too long stop, right? I've, we've actually seen that happen. Uh, so pick one that you think might be the most important to work on either because of its criticality or even because it's simple, right? Because that's the other piece of the advice is maybe pick something simple to start with, try these techniques, do a value stream map, invest in some improvements in that value stream, see if you can measure it and observe the change. And if you can do that, you'll convince yourself that this is the juice is worth the squeeze. Right, so start slow, iterate. Uh, don't don't try and tackle every value stream in the organization out of the gate. I know that might be hard for some folks uh, joining this uh, webcast, but uh, start slow, iterate. That's a that's a big uh, mistake that uh, some organizations fall into. So then the next step, uh, this is a Japanese uh, idea of Gemba. I don't know if many of you uh, probably heard that. For those that you those that haven't, the idea here is that uh, you only can really understand the value creation activities if you go and see it done. 
So Gemba means uh, go and see the real place. There's lots of different interpretations of exactly what Gemba means, but basically it means get out of your office, go and see the work being done, observe the people that are in the process executing the work. It's, it, if you've never done it before, it's likely that it'll give you tremendous insight into both uh, what are the value creating activities, but equally important, what are all the non-value creating activities? Because that's, that's really what we're going after is uh, how, do we, how do we identify and eliminate a lot of those non-value activities? And, you know, we're, when I, the next step we're going to, uh, next couple of steps are going to involve actually taking some measurements, like clocking and writing down how long did it take them to create this value adding activity. Don't take anybody's word for it. Go and see it, observe it for yourself if you're going to be part of the, the team that's doing the value stream mapping. So then the next step, uh, we want to actually start at a pretty high level, just thinking about those process steps and working backwards from the customer. So the customer has received this physical product, service, or piece of information. What's the thing that happened just before they got it? What's that process step? What's the thing that happened just before that? It tends to be a lot easier to work backwards than to, to work forwards. Uh, and again, at this point, we're staying at a relatively high level in looking at the process. Then we're going to start to add some details in here. Uh, so I mentioned before the idea of the time ladder. So we're going to measure, we're going to physically measure how long did it take to execute those value adding activities. So in the example I have here, um, there, this is a, like a print shop example. Uh, their value adding activities are cutting, printing, binding, final, final inspection. So we're going to measure how long did it take to actually do the cutting? Well, in this example, it turns out it took a tenth of a second to do the cutting, and then it waited for two days before we did printing. And it took us 20 seconds to do printing, and then it waited a half a day before we did binding, 90 seconds to do binding, and then it waited another day before final inspection. So that, that's the kind of uh, observation we need to make during our Gemba walk is how much time is actually spent creating the value versus waiting or, or holding or, or uh, decision-making. Then we want to actually add some pro, uh, process details. So process details might look like, what's, what's our cycle time? How long did it actually take us to execute that step? Uh, change over time. Uh, in a manufacturing context, that might look like uh, changing out dyes for a stamping machine. Uh, change over time in knowledge work might look like switching from one project to another project. Like if I have to multitask my analysis, how long does it take me to stop my analysis on project one and start my analysis on project two? That might be an example of change over time. Uptime, how, how, how many hours of the day is this thing actually done? Are, are, there, is there, are there shifts? How much time is available? And then overall, we wanna look at things like throughput. How, what is the rate, like how many things do we get done in a week? How many things do we get done in a month? And, and for those things that we complete, what's the defect rate? How often is there a mistake made uh, in execution of this value stream? So we wanna layer in those details. We also wanna look at resources in the form of people in this case. How many people are involved in executing these activities? So you know ways you might use these insights. Imagine you have a step 
that appears to be a bottleneck and you realize that there's only one person doing it. Well, an obvious, an obvious question might be, what if we added more people to that process step? Would things go faster? But the inverse could be true, right? Maybe, maybe we have 10 people doing something and it's completely over, overloading the system and we don't actually need 10 people doing it. So we should reallocate those resources somewhere else. And then the last piece of it, and this, this is usually the shocking bit, the first time someone does a value stream map, which is uh, calculating the value add percentage, which in the example that I have here is 0 0.003, we'll call it 0.004%. It's really low. And so the value stream percent is what is the percentage of time that we're actually doing value added activities as opposed to either incidental waste or pure waste. You might, you may or may not know this, but world-class performance is like 45%. Yeah, you know, we would love to think when we go to work every day that 100% of our time is value added, right? People that have been doing value stream mapping activities would argue tremendously with that statement. Because as if you look at uh, most value streams, there's a huge amount of waste in the system and that percentage is pretty low. Uh, the good news is there's only one direction. You can go up, right? It's, <laughs> you, can, you can't, you know, the, the old saying, you can't swing a dead cat. Well, you can't swing a dead cat without finding some waste in a value stream. Like there will be opportunities to make this thing better. So then what do we, the first thing is interpreting it. And what do we do with this uh, value stream map? The first step is identifying what the forms of waste are. So when I first, I learned lean 20 years ago now, can't believe it's been that long. Um, and we, we use this acronym, Tim Wood, Tim Wood. That's, that's how we remember this. Uh, transportation, inventory, motion, weight, overprocessing, overproduction, defects. The S, now it's Tim Woods. Uh, we've added the S because of the amount of knowledge work that's, that's part of pretty much every organization today. Uh, but let me walk you through what these, what these all mean briefly. So T, transportation. If we have to move uh, items or information from one place to another to execute a process, that, that time that it takes to move things, waste. Inventory unfinished work, work in progress, things that we've started but haven't finished, all of that inventory is considered waste. If people have to move, so transportation is moving the work, motion is moving the people. If I have to walk from one building to another building to have a meeting to get a decision made, all of that time I'm walking from building A to building B is waste. Uh, wait time, I'm waiting to get a decision made, I'm waiting to get an order approved, whatever that might be, and anytime I'm waiting, waste. Over-processing, doing more work than is actually necessary to deliver value. Uh, gold plating, right? If you've heard that phrase, gold plate, do, making it better than it needs to be, that's waste. Overproduction, doing it before it's needed. Just, so, a lot of people say, I've, that never happens, right? <laughs> We're always getting it done just in time. Well, maybe, but there's definitely probably some examples of where Things are being done before it's actually needed. That would all be considered waste. Defects. Uh, certainly anytime there's a mistake, particularly if we have to go back and correct it before the customer can use it, all of that time that we spent fixing a defect is considered waste. 
And then uh, skills. This is this is one of the ones I think is probably growing in terms of its impact in organizations, and that is people with capabilities, skills that aren't being leveraged to the fullest. That that is now considered a form of waste in a value stream. So when you think about your Gemba walk and you think about uh, mapping out the process, the first sort of checkpoint is. What is all the different form? What are all the different forms of waste that we've identified, and how might we go about removing them? Another another uh, Dilbert cartoon here. Um, it you know lot lot of fancy talk so far around value stream maps and value added percentages and all those uh, all those sorts of things. But it, you know there is no value in just creating the value stream. You know you could sort of think if you just create the value stream map and then stop, that was all waste because you didn't do anything with it. So where I want to end the talk is, is a discussion around what do we do with it once we have it? A couple more memes. I'm, I'm a big meme fan. You know, one from uh, Austin Powers and uh, one from Pulp Fiction. Uh, first thing is we actually want someone to take ownership of a value stream so that, that they can uh, be responsible for um, setting goals and monitoring them and communicating performance against those goals uh, to be on point for problem solving and ongoing improvements of the value stream and making sure that we're staying aligned strategically. And then the next one uh, is around setting those measurements. So I have a joke in here about KPIs, right? We hear that term gets thrown around all the time, KPI, KPI, KPI. Well, yes, I'm going to use it again. I'm going to I'm going to say we should set KPIs or key performance indicators for those of you that maybe haven't heard that before. Um, you actually want to think about what are the relevant value stream KPIs, and these could take multiple forms. One form could be uh, some of the more standard process management type uh, KPIs, like cycle time, throughput, defect rate. Those would all be process things. Uh, product related KPIs would be uh, either um, like business objectives, right? If in a commercial context, maybe we want to set objectives around customer acquisition or revenue growth or reduction in churn, uh, you know, turnover of customers. Those would be product-oriented uh, KPIs. Maybe it's even people KPIs, particularly if one of the forms of waste that you've identified is that uh, skills one, and you want to set KPIs around level of training or uh, knowledge sharing or job rotation or whatever it might be to improve that, you can set KPIs uh, around that. Um, one way to take these KPIs and turn them into action is through the use of objectives and key results. And, and I know from talking to Jay that there was a talk earlier on OKR. So here's a, here's a connection point for you, right? Um, to me, KPIs and OKRs are close cousins, right? A KPI uh, is waiting for an OKR to make it better. In, in other words, a KPI is just a thing you might monitor. To turn it into an OKR, you actually set an objective around it. So the, in terms of the, I mentioned cycle time, right? We could say, or right, we're going to monitor cycle time. That's a KPI. A, an OKR might be uh, objective, uh, radically improve our time to market. Decrease then the key result. Decrease cycle time by twenty five percent in the next six months, right? So same, same, right? It's still all about cycle time, but I've just used the OKR framing to make it actionable within a different within a specific time frame 
to, to turn it into uh, an OKR. The next implication is actually organizational design. And, and I'll tell you, this is actually where things get hard, right? What you are likely to realize is that your value streams end up cutting across what are today organizational silos or across your organizational chart, uh, for lack of a better term. Uh, the example that I'm talk that I talk about here is is a software one. Uh, you might you so you have business people, product people, hardware, software, quality testing in a traditionally designed organization. Those might be separate leaders, separate org charts, interaction between them, but largely separated. One of the one of the first things that you can do to improve the value stream is to actually organize around value streams, just by putting people on the same team you're going to massively reduce friction. So a lot of that waste that shows up in wait time or movement or transportation can be reduced simply by changing the org chart. And now it's easy in one breath and likely the hardest thing to do, right? Because now you're talking about getting a group of leaders to take a look at what is today their organization and think completely differently about what it is that they own. It's important to do and it can be one of the uh, most have the highest impact, but it's also maybe one of the most challenging. And then finally, I want to make a tie here to uh, lean portfolio management. Uh, for those of you that maybe, again, are, are familiar with SAFE or involved in software development, this is a hot topic recently. Uh, lots of organizations are talking about lean portfolio management. What many people don't know is that this concept of identifying your value, mapping your value streams, is actually fundamental to lean portfolio management. Lean portfolio management assumes that you're A, work, you've identified your value streams, and B, that you've largely organized your capacity to do work around those value streams. So the idea here is <clears throat> if you have, let's say you have four value streams that you've mapped out and you're going to manage. Well, now we get to decide, now we get to decide uh, how much funding are we going to allocate to each one of those value streams? In other words, how much capacity, organizational capacity, are we going to dedicate to each of those four value streams? And then the lean portfolio management idea is that we are going to, as people come up with new ideas about how to improve those value streams, we're then going to move them into the process as there is capacity to execute on them through a lightweight business case and then ultimately set objectives and key results around what we're looking to improve by executing that project or initiative and measuring it, right? So I hope that sounds a lot like what I just talked about what you should do with value streams. That's what like lean portfolio management is just a way to do that at scale and uh, particularly tied to uh, the safe methodology for, for agile development. Yeah, Mark, thanks so much for sharing that with us. And, and I think the first question I'd like to ask, could you tell us about your experience bringing value stream maps to the national security teams? What have been the biggest lessons? And then additionally, which value streams make exceptionally good targets for improvement? Yeah, so I think uh, in the national security space, I think the, the observation that I, that I made it, make is that this idea of, be, of being in organizational silos um, is really prevalent. 
in in national security. What's interesting is it's not prevalent in on the operational side of things, right? Like the value of cross-functional teams and sort of breaking down silos, everybody gets it. But back at headquarters, right? Everybody goes back into their functional silo and they operate in that space. Ultimately, identifying value stream maps and executing against that requires that we think differently about how the organization is structured. I think that's that's one of the one of the big challenges. And then are there any particular targets you'd recommend for people listening to that are like easy to control and really accessible for for leaders to shape as, as kind of like a starting block? Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons I picked the the hire to retire value stream, right? Whether you tackle all of that or part of it, I mean the the people that are part of the national security space, like massive asset, right? So figuring out how to maximize the amount of value creation in that, you know, how do we identify them, select, hire, train them, upskill them, uh, keep them happy, like all of those sorts of things. I think that's, that's probably uh, an area that's really ripe for uh, talking, like thinking about the value stream as it relates to, to that work. The next question kind of coming off that is, what are the biggest sources of waste you consistently find when you're helping teams value stream? And, and what should people be starting to think expressly about identifying and eliminating as they explore the skill set? This might be my favorite topic, Jay. So I'll, I'll, I'll try and keep it brief. In my opinion, almost without question, the biggest form of waste, and this is national security, other federal context, commercial context, is inventory, work in progress, leaders. And, and people within organizations love to be busy. So we keep jamming more paper into the printer and say, go faster. And then we wonder why things don't go faster. So all of that inventory, all of that unfinished work, we said we looked at it in the definitions, right? It's all waste. And we could go so much faster if we would just make some hard decisions around what priorities truly are so that we could have less things in progress. That, that in my opinion, is, is absolutely the biggest form of waste that, that we see. So, and, and I think that leads to a next question, which is if over-processing and inventory, for example, are classic forms of waste, how should defense leaders balance the need to maintain readiness, which is like defined as everything's got the maintenance requirements, everyone's ready to deploy, your unit is operational to the highest possible standard. So there's a lot of activities and churn associated with this metric. And your point about if we're moving more than we need to, then we're being wasteful. What, what is the, the appropriate balance between those two different targets? Well, I, I, I think it is, you know, it's about just identifying where are there opportunities to re reduce those ways. Some of it is going to occur no matter what you do, right? Like the, the movement of people is a great example where in the national security context, like that's inevitable. Like you can't actually do the job unless you, you move. And while, while you, you look at that and you, you say, well, hey, Mark, you know, Mark said, or well, not Mark said, Lean said that that is a form of waste. That's probably not a place for you know, worrying too much about, right? But what are the other areas that, that we could improve, right? So it, it is about accepting that A, uh, waste is gonna exist in every process. That's part of the reason I gave the example of world-class process efficiency is like 40%. Right. So 
there's lots of opportunity to make improvements that may not that that sort of accept the laws of physics, like the fact that we've actually got to move people. Absolutely. And the next question I'd ask to, to kind of make something that feels potentially very abstract to listeners feel more tangible. Can you walk us through a case where you helped a team apply this? What are the biggest lessons learned from that experience? And then what kind of advice would you give back either to that leader or yourself if you got to restart that for those who are thinking about bringing this to their teams? Yeah, so I think the the one that comes to mind first is uh, that of software development. I mean, that's we, we spend most of our time uh, working with teams who are building things in the software context. A couple of lessons there, right? One is we accept sort of status quo too often. Let me give you a tactical example, you know, for in, in that context. So, uh, well, we can't finish this work because the testers haven't tested it yet, right? So it's waiting. And you might, then I ask the question, so are you saying that testers are the only, the people who have that tattooed on their chest are the only people who can actually execute testing? Well, the answer is of course not, right? So what we've just identified is a, a form of skills waste where people who are capable of doing more aren't doing it. And so now we're talking about breaking down mindsets and sort of uh, people's viewpoints on, on what their role is in the organization, right? So I think the, the lesson learned there is um, when you talk about improving a value stream, there's sort of mechanical aspects of it. In a software context, you know, we can automate test, we can automate testing, surely, right? That's sort of mechanical. But there's a human side of it that we can't underappreciate, which is when we start for lack of a better term, messing with people's rice bowls, right? And impacting how they view their role in the organization, it gets really, it gets really challenging. And that's that's the leadership moment is to say, hey, you know, we're not doing this to scare people and make them think that their jobs are at risk. We're doing it because we're trying to create more value for our customer. I think that that's an important piece to remember. A question on the practice of implementing this. So earlier you were talking about how when you walk the Gemba, right, you're going to record the steps. And then you said you're recording primarily the value added steps for leaders that go through and start to identify opportunities for either non like non-required waste and just straight noise. What do you generally advise? Is it just like try to delete it from the book and rewrite the SOP? Is it record the step and counselor people not to do it? How do you, how do you manage organizing the value stream with identifying inefficiencies that you're removing and what's the best way to rebuild practices as these come up and get identified? Well, I think you want to, you want to look for targets of opportunity, right? Um, where, where have you observed waste <clears throat> that seems really clearly waste, right? Cause we, you, you don't need, it's not worth splitting hairs of, is it value creating? Is it not value creating when there's a great debate? Cause my experience is when you actually go through this process, it will be remarkably clear where the waste is and there will be way more than you thought. So uh, find that low hanging fruit, make those changes, measure it, and then tell, and then show people what you did and then repeat, right? That, that, that's how we get from 0.003 to point to 1% process efficiency. If you think about that, that's a massive improvement. There's still tons of waste for 1% efficient. There's still tons of waste, but on a, as a percentage improvement, we have massively improved our efficiency. 
So I think, you know, if you go back to the, the early part of the talk where I said, Hey, this isn't, this isn't five steps and you're done. This is a continuous thing that we're going to do is once you get into this mode of mapping your value streams and managing your value streams, you realize like we never get off this ride. We're just constantly looking at what's the next thing we can do to get better. And that's a tied to that. When, when you're looking at teams, you, you point out owning value streams and, and I, with the military, usually you have officers assigned to a given task or, or someone's an owner. Do you see value streams essentially tied to positions? And if so, how should people recognize or, or integrate value stream management with their other duties? Is it a function of you do it once and then you're good? Or, or how do you actually operationalize this within a unit's normal battle rhythm? So that way this is a core part of how they're operating and not like an external novelty that may get forgotten at the cost of unfortunately recapturing those inefficiencies. Leaders have a, a certain scope that they're responsible for today, right? Like some part of the organization that they, for back, they they own. They're they're the they're the head of whatever element that is. Um, I think it's just thinking differently about what you own, right? Rather than a functional silo, you own a value stream. And in the national security context, what that that likely means that that job is going to change. Whoever's in that seat is probably on a, on a rotation and it's going to end. But that position, that value stream owner position should exist as long as the value stream exists. If you're really going to go down this route, I think you got to view these things as these aren't projects, right? These aren't short-term things. These are long-term core elements of the organization um, where somebody needs to be in that seat of value stream owner as long as we're going to as long as we care about making the value stream better, we should have somebody in that seat. Doesn't always have to be the same person, but someone should be in that role. How do you sell this approach to leaders that are unfamiliar with these concepts and may have other precognitions or, or assumptions walking into this? Because obviously it's important, but leaders have to get buy-in. So what strategy is most effective or what examples do you have of teams that were able to win their leadership over to this way of thinking? That's a good one. <laughs> I might have to pause, just uh, form a, a few thoughts in my head on that one. Yeah, absolutely. Take your time, not a rush. Well, again, I think it's about starting small and showing progress, right? Uh, and, and this is why part of the reason I made the tie back to objectives and key results, which is I think one of the ways you get leaders on board is you show them measurable progress, right? So if you can take a small value stream, something that feels doable, declare objectives and key results around it, demonstrate progress, you're a lot more likely to get leaders excited about taking the next step. I think it can be, it can be overwhelming if you sort of pull the, pull the cover back and say, hey, we're going to go down this value stream mapping journey and we're going to have to reorganize everything. Whoa, whoa, we don't have time for that, right? We got other stuff we got to do. So I think I think it's about uh, getting leaders and not just leaders, but other people in the organization on board by showing forward momentum and demonstrating what what is possible when you think about what is it, what is the end-to-end -end value and how do we measure it and how do we make it better and then and then doing it in, in a small way and then repeating that bigger and bigger and bigger. That's that that would that's the best advice that I could give is don't don't try and tackle this all at once. That's that's where I've seen the biggest failures. And that I think lends itself to the next question, which is if someone listening tonight wanted to get started tomorrow, 
What are the top resources you'd point them towards to make sure that they're starting with as much knowledge as possible and building effectively? And then if you have any examples, and we, you shared one, for example, about cleaning a house, like very small examples that they can use to anchor their knowledge and iterate towards something that becomes uh, much larger at the institutional level. I'll share that one because it's, it's, uh, it's apropos of uh, my life right now. Uh, but in terms of resources to get to get people started, um, that's why I shared some of those books in the beginning. And I'd be happy we could put, you know, send that out in a, a follow-up so people actually have the record of it. But um, I think you got to start from the beginning, right? And understand what is lean? What does it mean to be, <clears throat> to do lean thinking? The, the, the writing around the Toyota way and the Toyota production system in terms of the way management and leadership thinks about it. I think that's really fundamental learning for people who haven't been exposed to this before. Jay, to your point about how, how can you practice this in day-to-day -day life? Uh, I teach my kids uh, removal of waste when we clean the house, right? I, my, my explanation to them is, hey, there's, there's 15 things we need to do to clean the house, right? And sometimes I'll find they'll start one thing and then they'll not finish that and they'll go to the next thing and not finish that and they'll go to the next thing and not finish that. And I try to explain to them is like, if you're running back and forth between six rooms of the house, like picking up a few toys, then uh, cleaning the, the sur one surface in the bathroom and then vacuuming another room, we're going to be here all day. <laughs> I want to watch some football. Okay. So let's focus. <laughs> let's eliminate work in progress and uh, streamline our house cleaning activity. So real point there being, I think there's opportunities to practice this stuff every day in the way you think about getting work done, whether that's work at home or work uh, at work. Thanks for taking the time to listen. We love ideas and feedback, so feel free to send your thoughts to hello at deaf.org. For more great content and to stay in the loop about community events and activities, follow us on social media and subscribe to our monthly newsletter. Everyone plays a part in building the innovative national security culture we want to see. To find where you fit, just go to deaf.org slash join. That's def.org slash join. And a point I'd add to that is that after our conversation, I was reflecting on, you, you pick something that's non-technical normally, which is like, say the infantry, right? And it may seem like it doesn't apply, but you can take something as basic as the way you conduct a physical training session. And you look at the, the Tim Woods thing earlier. And if you're running around between machines or soldiers are waiting too long to get on a piece of equipment, or we haven't actually sequenced the flow of the training session to be effective, like all these gaps end up meaning time that soldiers aren't spending training which means that you have all this waste built into a training cycle. So you may have a 90 minute PT session of which maybe at best 40 minutes is actually doing something. And so you, even for someone who may think non-technically, the applications of this are huge. And obviously, as you mentioned earlier, it extends the way that we recruit, train, onboard, whether we understand targeting cycles. So with that, uh, thank you so much, Mark, for, for sharing this evening with us. We're really grateful for the insights you've got. Uh, for everybody listening, thanks for, for joining us. This will be coming out as a podcast soon. We're looking forward to, to learning with you again. Uh, and Mark, is there anywhere that people can go to learn more about what you and your team are doing? Yeah, we, uh, our website, hardyards.com. Uh, you know, we, we do coaching and training, uh, consulting on, on all of this stuff. Uh, and, and 
uh, much more. So if, if you're, if you're interested, if you want to go down this path and you want some help, uh, please reach out. We'll be happy to do it.